Our scripture reading for today is Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, do you think, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Father, we do come before you this morning expectant to hear from your word, from this story that maybe to some of us is very familiar, even if we're not normal churchgoers or people that know a lot about scripture, we still maybe have a sense of what this story is about. So we just ask today that you would make it fresh for us, Help us to see it with new eyes and hear it with new ears. And again, God, we're just excited to be together to worship and to hear from your word and to enjoy each other's company. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's start with this. For thousands of years, human beings have been asking the question, what is a good life? What does a good life look like? And after thousands of years of debate and conversation, contributions from philosophers, religious teachers, politicians, entire societies, and individuals. I'm happy to let you know this question was finally answered a couple months ago by the Huffington Post. <laughs> Actually, it was also answered not that long ago by BuzzFeed. Um, and I was going to use that one, but it was like a bunch of pictures of corgis in Southern California. And I was like, oh, that's just too much. I can't handle that. <laughs> we'll go with the Huffington Post. So here is what this author had to say in response to the question, what does a good life look like? She says, a good life is one in which we feel loved. A good life has you feeling success. A good life allows you to laugh and feel joy. A good life holds beauty. A good life has you putting into every week some things you love to do. I like that last one because it's kind of like, your week might be terrible, but if you are living a good life, at least there'll be some things that you love to do that are in there. Now, the point of this is, again, not to say that, of course, they've answered the question, but I think there's some really interesting things that come up in this list. I think that this list echoes some very deeply held cultural beliefs about what we believe the good life to look like, how the good life is measured. And I think in our day and age, we tend to measure how well life is going, how good our life is by how many positive feelings we are experiencing. 
You can just look at some of the words and the way that that list is written. Sociologists Christian Smith and Kendra Dean, these are two folks who spent a long time looking at the religious beliefs of Americans, argue that most Americans have a religion, have a religious viewpoint, and they call it moral therapeutic deism. Okay, that's a fancy $10 phrase, moral therapeutic deism. This is essentially the idea that if you are nice, if you are a good person, God, whoever that might be, who is essentially this sort of grandpa figure up in the sky somewhere, God will give you good things. He will reward you for your good behavior. Essentially, this is the American version of karma. And in many ways, it is how we are answering this question, this question of what does a good life look like? It's essentially this, be a good person, put some goodness out into the world and it will come back to you, particularly in the form of laughter and joy and success and love, these positive feelings. Now, keeping that in mind, let's turn our attention to this text, this very famous story of the Good Samaritan. Again, for those of us here, whether we've been in church for a long time or not, we're probably familiar at some level with this story. We know this phrase, the Good Samaritan. It's a law even in our country, still deep in our cultural imagination. So in order for us to kind of look at this, I think, with some new eyes, I'd like us to go back a little bit and look at some of the things that lead up to Jesus having this interaction with this lawyer and telling this story. So going all the way back, Luke chapter 9, if you still have your Bible open, you can flip back a page or two. Look at Luke chapter 9. If you've been with us through the fall and the winter, we've been in Luke from time to time. And in this series, we've quoted this particular verse, Luke 9.51, every single week. Because it really sets the tone for Luke's gospel. So Luke 9.51, we read, When the days drew near for him, him being Jesus, of course, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Here is this moment, this very determined moment in Jesus' story where he knows it's time for me to head to Jerusalem. My days are numbered, and he sets his face, this phrase of determination, towards the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Again, we've looked at that every single week. We haven't always looked at what comes right after that. So look at verse 52. Jesus sends messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? This is one of the greatest questions in all of Scripture. <laughs> Two things that I love about this. Number one, a lot of times when we are faced with opposition or we have those kinds of people in our lives that we're butting heads with, we sort of do the polite thing and we talk about them behind their back or we try to avoid where they're going to be. James and John are much more direct. I love their directness. Let's just call down fire on these guys that don't like us. <laughs> The second thing, and this is the thing that I really love about this, is there's this sort of naive confidence that this is a legitimate option, right? Like, we could actually do this, which to me raises a whole bunch of questions. Like, have they been practicing this? Is this something that they tested out before, and now all of a sudden they're like, oh, this is the time. Let's do it. Let's call down the fire. <laughs> Look at how Jesus responds, though. 
he turned and rebuked them. And then they went on to another village. Now, this is kind of a silly scene in some ways that I think there's obviously some fun we can have with that question. But this scene really sets the tone, again, for everything that happens after this in Luke's telling of the Jesus story. There's this hostility, this opposition to Jesus and his message. And then there's Jesus' surprising, gracious response. And in this particular scene, Jesus says, no, calling down fire, annihilating our enemies is not how I operate. This is not my way. Now, continuing on, Luke 9, 57 through 62, I'm going to paraphrase this. The text will be up on the screen. Of course, you can look at it in your Bible there, but I'm going to put this into my own words. Jesus here encounters three different potential would-be disciples. The first one says, hey, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus essentially says, cool, that's awesome. However, I just want to let you know, we're not going to be staying at the Ritz. We're not going to be eating at nice restaurants. And then that's kind of the last we hear from that guy. Okay, the second gets a personal invitation from Jesus. Follow me. This is the same invitation Jesus extended to James and John and all the other disciples. This guy is willing, but with conditions. Hey, I have something important to do first. Let me take care of that, and then I will come follow you. And to this person, Jesus challenges his priorities. Third person says, I'm in, but give me a few days. I need to say goodbye to my mom and kiss my dog and all that kind of stuff before I go. And to this would-be disciple, Jesus says, hey, it's now or never. I'm on a mission. My face is set to go to Jerusalem. Are you in or are you out? So one of the things that Jesus is trying to show, demonstrate to these guys, these potential disciples, is you don't get to follow me on your terms. And it's the same thing that he's saying to James and John when they want to call down fire from heaven. You don't get to do this the way that you maybe want to do this. Following me happens on my terms. Now, this is really challenging because how often do we do this where we try to make following Jesus about us? We say things like, oh, I'll follow Jesus as long as I go to a church that sings all the right songs and everyone believes all the same things that I do. I'll follow Jesus if I get to do something cool and awesome and write a book about it and get to go on a speaking tour. I'll follow Jesus once all of my big philosophical and theological questions are answered. I'll follow Jesus, just let me get my finances in order, let me get my career off the ground, let me get my family started. Whatever it is, we put conditions on following Jesus all the time, and yet Jesus says, you don't get to do that. I get to set the terms. Now, that concludes chapter 9 and sets us up for the beginning of chapter 10. At the beginning of Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out 72 disciples, and he sends them out on a mission on his terms. And look at his terms. These are amazing. Verses 3 and 4 of chapter 10. I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Good luck. <laughs> awesome assignment. This sort of reminds me, there's a legendary story around a guy named Ernest Shackleton. He's an explorer, very famous explorer from the early 20th century. There's a legendary story about this expedition that he took to the South Pole, and before he goes, he puts an ad in a London newspaper that reads like this. Men wanted for hazardous journey. 
Low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return, doubtful. <laughs> Honor and recognition in event of success. <laughs> I think that's awesome. That actually kind of gets me excited. I'm like, ooh, I'm intrigued by that. But to me, it sounds again like what Jesus is asking these guys to do, this sort of impossible mission, this bare, essential, go out there with nothing and see what happens kind of mission. And here's the crazy thing. They go out on Jesus' terms, and in verse 17, we read that when they come back, they're filled with joy. They're filled with joy because of all the things that they have seen God do in them and through them. So there's this contrast, there's this tension here in what we've seen so far between these disciples, these would-be disciples in Luke chapter 9 who are trying to follow Jesus on their own terms, and then these 72 who take Jesus at his word and see God come through in all kinds of amazing and interesting ways. And so this is the background, this is the backdrop, this is the sort of underlying tension that leads into this scene that we're going to spend most of our time in this morning, this very famous Good Samaritan story. And again, the question hanging there is, will you follow Jesus on your terms or his? So turning our attention now to our actual text, Luke 10, 25, opens like this. A lawyer, a Bible scholar, a religious authority of the day, a leader of the day, stands up and asks Jesus a very Standard question, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, immediately here, we need to sort of put our 21st century churchy knowledge to the side and understand that this is not a question about where this guy is going after he dies. This phrase, eternal life, particularly in the rabbinical conversations of Jesus' day, had much more to do with a quality of life, a kind of life. You might even translate this, teacher, how do I live an eternal kind of life? Essentially, he's asking the question that we open with. He's asking, what does a good life look like? How can I live a good life? Again, this is a very normal question to ask a rabbi. It is a testing question. We see that in verse 1025. But it's not testing to try to trick Jesus. It's testing to simply see what is Jesus all about? Sort of like asking a politician, what are your views on the economy? How they answer that question tells you a lot about who they are and what they stand for. So he's kind of feeling Jesus out. Jesus responds with another question. What is written in the law? How do you read it? Now, Jesus is not trying to be clever here and dodge the issue. He's doing, again, a very typical rabbi thing to do, which is to answer a question with another question. And the lawyer would be very comfortable, very familiar with this kind of back and forth dialogue. He's probably had this kind of conversation hundreds of times with other teachers. Now the lawyer's response is straight out of the textbook. He takes two verses, one from Leviticus, one from Deuteronomy, from what would have been called the Pentateuch, the books of the law, the thing that he was an expert in, and he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. A very classic standard answer to the question, what does it look like to live a good life? 
Jesus says, good answer, go do that and you will live. Jesus himself uses this very answer at other points in the gospel. So to this point in the conversation, there's really nothing remarkable about what has happened in this exchange. Again, this is a very classic back and forth between two teachers. But now is where things get interesting. Verse 29, the lawyer asks another question. Well, who is my neighbor? And here the text gives us some interesting insight, gives us some extra commentary saying that this question came out of a desire to justify himself. If you've been with us for this series in Luke, you know that this self-justifying behavior or questioning is a common occurrence when people interact with Jesus. This desire to self-justify is so deeply ingrained in us. This is why social media exists, right? (laughs) Desiring to justify himself, he posted a picture of his 5,000 calorie meal on Instagram. (laughs) Desiring to justify herself, she reposted that article that props up her theological or political position on that particular issue. Desiring to justify themselves, they added hashtag YOLO to every post. If you don't know what that means, ask one of our interns. They'll explain it to you. (laughs) On and on it goes, right? This desire to self-justify. Eugene Peterson writes, Self-justification is a verbal device for restoring the appearance of rightness without doing anything about the substance. Ooh. (laughs) So... There's something about the lawyer, about the way the lawyer is living, that he senses is off. And I think that maybe he senses there's more to life than having the right answers, having the correct theology, being able to rattle off the standard party line answer to whatever the big question of the moment might be. And if we really peel back the layers, there's something off, not just about what he believes, but about how he lives and how he loves And what's fascinating here, of course, is how Jesus responds to him. Jesus doesn't give him more information. He doesn't tell him to read another book. He tells him a story. Because sometimes when our hearts need to be expanded, again, we don't need books and information and articles. We need new, different stories. Stories have a way of opening up our hearts in ways that information can't. So Jesus tells a story. It's essentially a story about a road, a road that happens to be going from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, again, if you're paying attention, this is the opposite direction that Jesus is headed, right? Jesus headed towards Jerusalem, tells a story about a road away from Jerusalem. This road today would take you right through the West Bank, the violent West Bank. In Jesus' day, it was no different, filled with tension between these two different groups of people, in this case, Jews and Samaritans. A Jewish man is driving a car away from Jerusalem towards Jericho, and he gets jacked by robbers. They beat him up, they take his stuff, they leave him on the side of the road, half dead. This is where Jesus begins to put some interesting twists into the story. He says, it just so happens that a priest and a Levite passed by. Now, priests and Levites, also religious leaders, just like the lawyer. It's often pointed out here at this point in the story 
that the priest and the Levite are actually technically doing the right thing by moving to the other side of the road and avoiding this beat-up man. Because of their positions, because of the laws of the day, they needed to maintain a very high level of purity. And so touching a dead body, touching blood, would have made them unclean. And it would have meant that for them to perform their duties as priests, as Levites, they would have had to go through a very intense cleansing ritual. Now, there's some truth to this. And it's interesting to note, of course, but I think it's actually a lot deeper than that. Again, Jesus tells a story about a road that goes from Jerusalem towards Jericho. This means that they are leaving the temple. Okay, they are off work. They are not on the clock anymore. They're on their way home. Now, I get that sometimes this is the worst time to be interrupted. It's the end of the day. You're on your way home. You just want to get to your couch and kick your feet up and not be bothered, right? But I point this out to say this. This is so important to what Jesus is trying to communicate here. The move to the other side of the road is not so much about blind obligation to the law or following the rules. It's way more about the conditions of their hearts. This move to the other side of the road has to do with an inability to love. So then, of course, in contrast to all of this, Jesus has a Samaritan drive by. And the Samaritan is moved by compassion when he sees the man. The word compassion literally means to suffer with someone. It's moved by compassion, and he helps this guy out. He gets out of his car. He gets his hands dirty, literally and metaphorically. He dresses his wounds with oil and wine, an extravagant gesture, puts him in his car, drives him to a hotel, continues to care for him, offers to pay for any expenses that come up along the way. This is a heart with an incredible capacity to love. Now, Jesus does a really interesting thing here at the end of the story. Okay, he asks yet another question, and notice how he asks this question. Notice the wording of this question. Luke 10, 36. Which of these three, he says, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? What was the original question? Who is my neighbor? What does Jesus say here? Who proved to be a neighbor? You see, to Jesus, the question, who is my neighbor? Not an interesting question to him. The interesting question to him is not who is your neighbor, but who acts like a neighbor? You see, this is not a story about defining or categorizing people. It's a story that is meant to reveal our hearts, to expose our capacity, limited or not, to love. Now, what does the lawyer say in response to Jesus' question? He says, well, the one who showed mercy. Commentators love to jump on this and point out that this response demonstrates the deep levels of animosity between Jews and Samaritans that this lawyer can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan, right? It's simply just the one who shows mercy. And again, that's an interesting insight, but underneath that, underneath that prejudice is this lack of love in the heart of the lawyer. 
Scene ends with Jesus offering one final encouragement. Go and do likewise. Go and show mercy. Which is the answer to the original question about what does a good life look like. Go and love. Go and show mercy. That's how the scene ends. We don't really know what the lawyer does. It's sort of a question that's left hanging there. And what that really means is it's a question left hanging there for us. Will we try to follow Jesus on our own terms? Or will we allow this story to sink into our imagination, to sink into our hearts, to transform the way that we love? Now, there is, I've seen this a million times in so many different ways. There is a tendency with this parable to want to jump to a certain kind of application. And I think it's more of a cultural pressure, I would say, that comes from both inside and outside the church. And it's this. It's this pressure to come up with the most radical, crazy application of what it looks like to be a good Samaritan in our day and age. Sit in someone's living room and have a conversation about this. Hear someone preach about the Good Samaritan today. And you might come to the conclusion that the only way to be a Good Samaritan in the 21st century is to move to Syria and preach the good news to ISIS. Now, if you want to do that, great. We'll pray for you. (laughs) But this kind of application, again, it flows from this deep cultural pressure, again, found inside and outside the church to be remarkable. To live an extraordinary, amazing life. There's this deep fear that if our lives are filled with mundane things, jobs and commuting and paying the bills and going to class and watching house hunters, that somehow we're doing it wrong, right? (laughs) That we're just ordinary, boring people. But here's what I want to say. That is not the only Option And thinking that we have to do some big, radical, incredible gesture to apply this story does a couple of disservices. First, it makes us think that we have to do that. We have to come up with something amazing for Jesus to really be happy with us. Right? The more radical we are, the more God will love us. And then second, we end up doing the very thing that the lawyer is doing. We end up defining who our neighbor is. And remember, Jesus is not interested in helping you define who you will love. He is far more interested in you becoming a loving person. The Good Samaritan is not good because he sits in his room and comes up with this big list of like, what's the craziest thing I can do? I know, I'll go to the Jericho Road and I'll find a beat up guy and I'll take care of him. I'll start a 501c3 for beat-up guys on the side of the Jericho Road. No, he's good because he's moved by compassion, and he loves the man in very tangible and real ways. He meets the need that is right in front of him. Mother Teresa is famous for saying, not all of us can do great things, but we can do small things with great love. Small things with great love. Sarah Bessie is a wonderful writer, and she's got some great insights into this idea. And there are insights that sort of strike her in a parenting moment, but I would encourage you to sort of use your imagination to move outside of her example, her analogy here. 
Maybe it is parenting for you. Maybe it's a situation at work. Maybe it's someone you live with who's a difficult person. Whatever it might be, listen to what she has to say about this idea of small things with great love. She writes, Now, I don't know if you've ever had the misfortune to have to clean up wet rice krispies, but if not, I'll offer this piece of advice. You cannot sweep them up. You cannot vacuum them up. You cannot wipe them up. You must pick them up one at a time, bit by bit, and only then can you wash the floor properly. She says, I began to get angry as I picked up those Rice Krispies. Not at the children who created the mess. Those messes can't be helped when one is small. They're part of the deal. But rather at the fact that this was my life. (laughs) I muttered to myself under that kitchen table about how I was too smart for this. I'm too creative for this. I'm meant to be a writer, not a maid. I bet C.S. Lewis never had to clean up cereal. She says it would be funny if I hadn't actually believed it. If I hadn't actually believed the lie that I was too special, too holy, too smart, too good, too much altogether to pick up Rice Krispies in my own kitchen. She goes on to say, My husband went through similar feelings when he left full-time vocational ministry and then found himself driving a white work van with a phone number on the side, doing physical labor to pay our bills. In addition to the actual difficulty of the work itself, there was his ongoing internal monologue about how this wasn't good enough. This wasn't special enough. How he was supposed to be more or better. How this kind of work wasn't really contributing to the kingdom of God. How he was failing because he was here. Perhaps it isn't any wonder why we struggled. We've been fed a steady diet for years. That we were meant to change the world. To be heroes, to be different from everyone else, to be radical. Which of us, when presented with ordinary versus radical, wouldn't choose the latter? Wouldn't choose wanting to be special and different? And then she says, here was the revelation for us. God is with us in the ordinary. We didn't turn our lives upside down and move to communal housing or to the east side. We didn't set out to get a new fix of heroism to satiate our discomfort with the ordinary. You see, God is present in the ordinary and the regular and the uncelebrated in a way that I never could have fathomed when I thought God's best was only either on stage or a mountaintop or somewhere far away. We would have missed it, she writes. We would have missed the truth that God loves the whole world. That our ordinary, everyday, walking around lives are rich with meaning. That there's value in picking up Rice Krispies and typing in a cubicle and working from 8 to 5 and driving a delivery van and cooking dinner and picking up kids from daycare. When you're standing before God is stripped of being interesting or powerful or obvious or better than, when your place in the kingdom of God becomes ordinary and pedestrian, that's when you finally begin to receive the love of Christ as the free and wild and generous gift of abundance that it has been all along. And then you begin to see that love showing up in the craziest and most ordinary of places. And this is her conclusion. The point isn't being radical or a world changer. The point is following Jesus. That should sound familiar. 
God wasn't waiting for me in an orphanage or a book deal or in a position of power and influence. God was always under the kitchen table cleaning up Rice Krispies. So two questions as we close. First, are you trying to follow Jesus on your own terms? And then second, are you able to see that Jesus is not asking us to be radical, but to be ordinary people with an extraordinary capacity to love? Let's pray. Father, this is a challenging story for me. I want to check the boxes. I want to know who it is that I'm supposed to go love and take care of. It's a lot more difficult to shine that light back onto me and to my own heart and to see all the different ways in which I struggle to love. So I pray for each and every one of us here, God, wherever we might be, that we would simply accept your invitation to follow you, that we would avoid trying to create conditions and our own terms for what that looks like. And then, God, may we be a community of people who do small things with great love. And may the accumulation of those small acts of great love grow into something amazing and beautiful here in the city of Oakland. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.